Good morning, everybody, uh, and welcome to the Institute for Government. Uh, my name is Nick Davies, and I'm a programme director here. Well-planned economic infrastructure, by which I mean transport, energy, utilities, uh, digital communication, can play a critical role in solving some of the key challenges facing the UK economy at the moment, such as stagnant productivity and regional inequality. And it's for that reason that the Institute over the last 18 months has undertaken a major programme of work looking at how we can make better quality decisions on infrastructure. We've published seven reports, uh, with the most recent report out this morning, that looks specifically at the role of ministers, how they can ask better questions of their civil servants, how they can provide better direction, and ultimately how they can make better decisions. One of the key issues that we've picked up across our work is how we can take a more long-term and evidence-based approach to infrastructure policymaking. Too often in the UK, infrastructure decision-making has been uh, characterised by inconsistency, uh, constant change, and has been driven by short-term political considerations. And it was for this exact reason that the National Infrastructure Commission was established to try and help overcome these persistent problems. We think the NIC has got off to a really strong start. It's published some well-received work on cross-cutting issues like smart power and on area-specific developments like the Cambridge, Milton Keynes and Oxford Corridor. But it's primary responsibility and its most important job is to publish once every five years a national infrastructure assessment and the first one of these was published last week and that takes a 30-year look ahead at the country's infrastructure needs and made recommendations on transport, uh, low carbon energy, uh, flooding, uh, digital networks, as well as some of the key components of how decisions are made, such as economic appraisal, uh, devolution to cities, uh, financing and funding. This is a great opportunity to try and fix some of those persistent weaknesses in infrastructure decision-making in the UK. But in order to take advantage of that opportunity, it's critical that the government gets their response right. So what should the government's response look like? How can the policies and projects on infrastructure be better coordinated across Whitehall and the wider public sector? What should we be prioritising? And how can we ensure that the National Infrastructure Assessment really is a catalyst for taking a more long-term approach to infrastructure policymaking? Uh, to answer these questions and more, I'm joined by this stellar panel. Um, first up will be Sir John Armit, who is Chair of the National Infrastructure Commission, as well as the National Express Group, the City and Guilds Group, and the Thames Estuary 2050 Commission. His former roles include Chief Executive of Network Rail and Chairman of the Olympic Delivery Authority. And it was also his review in 2013 which recommended the creation of the National Infrastructure Commission. 
Next up will be Stephen Hammond, the MP for Wimbledon, uh, who's also chair of the all-party parliamentary group on infrastructure. Uh, he was the Minister for Transport between 2012 and 2014, uh, previously uh, working as the Shadow Transport Minister from 2005 to 2010. Uh, and Stephen's going to have to leave a little bit early, as you may have noticed he's been quite busy in the last couple of days uh, and needs to run off to Millbank. Uh, and finally, we have uh, Sarah Drake, who's the Chief Executive of the Association for Project Management. Um, she's previously been Managing Director of the Royal Town Planning Institute and has held managing director roles at the Home Builders Federation and the Trademark Owners Association, as well as director roles at Thames Television and Penguin Books. And we're particularly grateful to Sarah and the Association for Project Management for supporting both this event uh, and this morning's uh, publication on the role of ministers in infrastructure decision making. So in format for the day, the speakers are each going to make introductory comments. I'm going to then ask them a few questions, and then we're going to open it up to questions from the audience. Uh, so without further ado, I'll hand over to Sir John Armour. Well, thank you, Nick. And uh, Nick's um, managed to uh, cover quite a few of the things I was going to say. Uh, so uh, uh, quick response is, you know, what should the government's reaction be? Well, just accept the recommendations. And, uh, <laughs> let's move on. Uh, so what I'll do is I'll just add a little flesh to, um, to some of those uh, recommendations. Uh, the one which has inevitably possibly caused uh, more comment uh, was the one related to energy. Um, we haven't, as has been reported in some areas, said that we should now see the, uh, the end of nuclear. Um, what we have said is that we believe that, looking at the evidence, that by... <laughs> Um, 2050, you could see a uh, energy and electricity programme which was based um, fundamentally on renewables for the same price as one which is, uh, has a much heavier uh, nuclear component along the lines of what has previously been uh, suggested. The renewables programme requires a greater investment in the distribution network and in the, the smart systems which are required to support a renewables programme and so the extra cost which goes in there matches some of the extra offsets, the extra costs that you would see with the nuclear programme. The other th optimistic thing that we believe is, is evidenced is that it's easier to believe that, in fact, the renewables programme and renewables uh, systems will come down in cost. Now, part of the nuclear argument is, well, yes, we can expect to see significant reductions in nuclear as well. Uh, there is no evidence of that. Uh, either in this country or anywhere else around the world. So I think the challenge there is very much, well, you know, on what basis can one believe that there's going to be a 30% reduction in the building of nuclear power stations? It's much easier to believe that there's likely to be a continued reduction, as we've seen already in the cost of uh, renewables. Um, so we're saying for the same amount of money and, in fact, for the same electricity, cost of electricity as you are seeing today, which is roughly £1,850 per household, uh, you could hold that price in, in 2050, so it need not cost you um, any more. Uh, there's, the, there's the other mat matter of heat, and on heat we've said that you've only got two choices, really, at the end of the day, if you're going to decarbonise. Uh, one is to have a, a system based on hydrogen, uh, the other is to have one based on electricity. If it's electricity, it's likely to be heat pumps that we would have rather than gas boilers in our homes. Um, if it's hydrogen, obviously it would be a, a hydrogen boiler rather than a, uh, a gas boiler as we, as we have today. 
difficulty with that is that at the moment the hydrogen itself as a, as a system is something to be proven um, that you can store and transport it uh, effectively and safely and equally how you're going to produce it in the first place and fundamentally the only way you're likely to do that on scale is with carbon capture storage which is another system which is uh, yet to be demonstrated at scale. So we've recommended that government should actually uh, be willing to support uh, significant trials in both of those systems over the next uh, 10 years to get to a point where there can be a lot more confidence um, about what, whether that will work or if it doesn't, then we're going to face the need for uh, greater electri- electrification of, uh, of heat. Um, on waste, we fundamentally said let's recycle more and incinerate less. Um, or or landfill less. So we've proposed a series of targets. Um, Wales at the moment manages to separate out uh, and recycle 90% of its food waste. In in England, it's 45%. It seems odd that in England we can't manage to achieve the same thing with the benefits which flow from from that, both in the efficiency of the uh, recycling of other materials through incineration and, of course, with your food waste, you get the opportunity for... uh, um, producing methane gas through a, uh, through a biodigestion system. Um, we've, so we've said let's separate food waste by 2025 to sort of uh, very much higher percentages than we manage today. Let's recycle 65% um, of plastics, uh, of all, of, uh, recycle 65% of everything and 75% of plastics by 2030. And let's restrict the use uh, sooner than that of some of the key plastics such as uh, PVC and polystyrene. So, so setting targets for for those <coughs> on digital. <coughs> sorry, on digital, um, we've fundamentally in line with already many government and uh, uh, proposals and Ofcom proposals, which is let's uh, focus on fibre and let's have 100% fibre um, across the country to the households uh, to the premises by 2033. Um, and let's make sure that we support uh, the remoter and rural areas and let's do that up front rather than at the end, so almost start from the outside in. So government needs to support uh, the more rural uh, areas um, from the beginning. Uh, the private sector will undoubtedly, as we already see uh, in London and elsewhere, be happy to install fibre on a competitive basis. Uh, you will get to a point where there is, uh, it's, it becomes challenging for the private sector to, uh, to do it, and that, uh, that we suspect and we suggest will be found, in a sense, by, uh, by, by a sort of natural fallout system of the degree to which the private sector is and sees the benefit of installing fibre on um, a competitive basis and the point at which you have to start to provide some government uh, support. And as uh, Philip Hammond has already said yesterday, we recommended that we get to uh, a date by which it is possible to switch off from copper. Um, On transport, uh, we've focused on electrification of uh, cars, which we believe our our view is more optimistic um, or more challenging, perhaps, than the Department of Transport. Uh, They've been talking about 50 to 70% of new sales by 2030. We believe that could be 100% of new sales by 2030. But that will only happen if you remove range anxiety, and that requires government to to work with um, Ofwat and others to ensure... Sorry, not Ofwat, Ofgem, and others to ensure that we've got in place a a charging network across the country 
It requires local authorities to step up and be willing to make 20% of their car parking spaces uh, uh, available for electricity charging. It requires all new homes to be set up so that people can buy an electric car and be able to plug it in. So there's a series of measures to support um, the electrification of, uh, of cars. Um, Elsewhere on transport, and uh, it's wrapped up in a sense with a wider proposal we've made about devolution of, uh, of uh, financial um, powers to uh, local authorities. So we've said that the, the major cities, the mayors, should actually have five-year funding programmes uh, to be able to make their decisions about what, are the, what is the infrastructure or the transport systems that they believe are right for their city and the government should um, devolve money to them on a five-yearly cycle. Um, for the very large schemes which were required by cities, then uh, there would obviously still need to be more of an agreement between government and those cities as to what can be and can't be funded. In total, we've suggested £43 billion um, pounds by 2040 may, being made available to, uh, uh, to local, local government for transport systems. Uh, you might say, where's that money come from? Well, the government's given us a fiscal remit of 1.2% of GDP. As you get beyond 2025 and 2030, you can start to see headroom in that, uh, in the availability of money. Uh, and so it's uh, roughly, on average, two billion a year, but back end loaded fundamentally that for support for for local government on their on their transport systems. Um, on drought and uh, flood, we produced a paper a couple of uh, months ago now, uh, particularly to tie in with other papers which were being uh, produced at the time uh, by DEFRA. Um, we've said that the water companies, and it's rather, um, I suppose, uh, topical uh, today, but we've said that the water companies should reduce leakage by 50% um, by um, 2050. Uh, but we've said that won't be enough, that there'll need to be water transfer systems or extra capacity as well to create the buffer of roughly 4 billion litres a day which would be needed to see us through a severe drought uh, situation in the, in the future. On flooding, we've said that we think it, it would be, rather than have the sort of hit and miss approach we have at the moment where everybody rushes out after a flood event uh, and seeks to fix everything for a couple of years and then retreats and then three years later, five years later, we're all out there again in our Wellington boots. Uh, it would be much better if we adopted a standard approach to this. And so we've suggested probability levels uh, which should be adopted um, two different levels, one for cities and one for other areas. Uh, clearly the, the, the impact and the financial benefit of being having that protection in cities is a lot greater uh, than it is in other areas and therefore you, you can afford to um, take, a, um, take a higher probabilistic um, approach to that. Um, so we're saying a 0.1% uh, probability in the cities and a 0.5% uh, probability um, elsewhere. Um, and I think those are the, the main areas. The other, the other one point we've made is that we think good design is fundamental to good infrastructure. Uh, and we've said that we think all major projects should have a design panel and that there's at the NIC we're prepared to sort of hold the ring on that and set out some principles of good design which should be adopted and that every major project should have its design champion. Um, Sadie Morgan, who's one of our commissioners, fulfills that role at the moment for high speed too. Um, and uh, you know, if you say, well, what's a good example of this? I would simply point to the Jubilee Line stations in London. 
you know, they are something which we have every reason to be proud of and you know, that they, they lift the soul, I think. You go down into Canary Wharf Station, it's like going into a cathedral and uh, that is good design. It's effective, it works, but it also uh, uh, provides a lift to you in your daily life and that's what infrastructure should be doing as much as being simply functional. I'll stop there. Thank you. <laughs> I think I was asked to uh, comment on how the government should react to this. I see you're publishing a report how to be a minister making decisions on infrastructure. <laughs> I suspect that won't be required reading for me after the last few days. But, uh, uh, how should the, the government react? Well, I think the government should accept that one of its great triumphs was actually setting up a National Infrastructure Commission in this way. For far too long, as, as this report and others of numerous reports have pointed out, there has been a, um, rather like our economic policy, uh, econ uh, infrastructure policy was the same, stop-go cycles. Uh, and the National Infrastructure Commission was set up with a very uh, attempt to overcome that and then produce an executable plan. Uh, and therefore it seems to me the government should do three things. It should react to it. Um, and I think there are a number of ways it needs to react to it. First of all, if, if this plan is to be uh, in any way achievable, then government needs to react institutionally. Government is badly set up for long-term planning. Uh, there are silo mentalities still um, in uh, the way departments are set up, so infrastructure is handled by a number of, number of departments. If you sit in a cabinet committee, each did, although they're trying to achieve one project quite often in that committee, what you find is the competing departments are actually uh, wanting to put their own ends first. The other thing, of course, is that it has, you know, with the exception of two uh, ministers under George Osborne, there's never really been an infrastructure minister with any status which could pull those departments together or be the driver for big projects inside government. People are generally sceptical about setting up new departments, and I think that's probably right. <clears throat> but on the whole, a, an, an infrastructure minister of cabinet rank uh, set inside the Treasury, I think, would have the clout to overcome a number of the silo mentality. So the first thing I think the government needs to do is to look at its own institutional uh, processes to ensure that what is in this report could actually be deliverable. The second thing I think the government needs to look at is because this report challenges it in a number of ways, uh, the detail of which Sir John has just set out, but also the government is a very bad client on the whole. What the government tends to try and do is over-design and over-specify a project right at the beginning rather than going to experts. Uh, and so I think the, other the second key thing the government needs to do institutionally is to actually recognise it needs to become a more intelligent client and it should take the advice from experts as how to do so. But in a lot of cases it should actually accept what's in the report and then actually go out to the experts and say how should we deliver this rather than allowing teams of civil servants, most of whom are very clever, intelligent people, um, to design something, specify it. Uh, uh, rather, uh, let's get experts in earlier, would be my second point, so making the government an intelligent client. And what this report also does is challenge, I think, on financing, not just the devolution aspect. But we, uh, we look at projects in the UK, uh, infrastructure projects, in, in, in a quite a bizarre way. If we were in the commercial world, you'd never look at them like this. The, the current debate over Crossrail 2 is whether or not it can be funded during its build phase. This is a piece of infrastructure that is probably going to last for 75 years. Any normal business would amortise that over a much longer period. And one of the problems for government is it doesn't even have a notional balance sheet. So everything goes on debt and on borrowing. 
and there's no appreciation of the accretion to our national asset value. If there were even a notional balance sheet, you would actually look at the financing of projects in a very different way. So the very first thing this report does, it seems to me, is to challenge the government um, as to whether it's in any capacity to accept this report in terms of being able to do the next to accept this report. I think it should accept this report. I think Sir John has I, um, outlined a number of the issues. But actually, how is it then going to proceed? I think it needs to proceed by changing not only the culture inside government, but the culture outside government. And there are a number of those issues there today because you've talked a little bit about good design. Good design is not an engine itself. Good design feeds into um, how infrastructure works, how broadband can work, um, and how people can live their lives. And all of this is not about infrastructure as an end in itself. It's about the quali- allowing people to have the jobs of the future, to live the lives of the future, to accept, the way, um, to accept that there are links between people who do things. I was very struck about five years ago, I went to do a speech in Lincolnshire, uh, and I was asked, asked being speaking to some local businessmen in a relatively small market town. And they said, oh, we're all closing shop and moving to Peterborough. Why are you doing that? Well, we're doing that because there's no broadband here. We'd be happy. So the pressures on our infrastructure system, in terms of transport, housing, water, energy, all the things that are because we don't make we don't make linked up decisions. And I think therefore the government first of all needs to change not only its culture but the culture of others and the culture of people who provide infrastructure, so it can be provided in that way. Uh, and therefore the quality of design. We shouldn't just accept that uh, quality of design is great for the cathedral of the Crossrail station or the Jubilee stations. It should also be true elsewhere across the country. I, I think that, uh, I think the key, you've made some very key reports. Uh, I, think, I, I, I think you're right about electricity. I think one of the great challenges is going to be cultural, yeah, for the, for the British public, accepting that there are going to be new ways for them to store and use energy. Uh, I remember having a conversation with Oliver Letwin about 10 years ago about how you increase the charging network across the UK. At that stage, we just suggested putting it on the regulated asset base and actually be provided by the private sector for the public sector. There are plenty of ways to solve these problems, but we need to think about them. But the public also, um, the change, I think, in some of the battery storage possibilities uh, and therefore how we use infrastructure, how we, uh, sorry, how we use energy, how we store energy, the type of energy we may be able to use is a challenge and I think that will feed into this quite dramatically as well. Uh, and I think that we need, so therefore the other role of government is also uh, pressing down culturally on um, uh, the citizens of the country. You've mentioned electric cars, Sir John, and electric vehicles. Um, of course, the public have a scepticism at the moment being told 15 years ago that diesel was the way forward. The number of people who now say, why the hell should I believe you about electric cars? You'll have something else in the very near future. So culturally, there's a real challenge for government as well to make sure that some of these recommendations that are undoubtedly right um, actually are, are picked up and driven on um, by them to impress upon the public that these are the needs of the trade. Uh, and my, fi- my final point, I think, comes back to financing. Um, again, uh, I, I, I think that I'm not going to challenge any of the reports because I have to confess that given the events of the last few days, I've only read the executive summary rather than 200 reports. But it is waiting to join me on the beach somewhere this summer. Um, <laughs> but I think that the challenge on financing to the government is also key. Um, 
there, we, we went from uh, PPP to PFI projects and a number of, uh, and then a mistrust of working with the private sector in financing. The issue, of course, is that there are different structures available for different projects. And what the government, one of the reasons why it became a dirty word was we used the same mechanism for every project. Um, as any financier will tell you, there are any different, any different numbers of structures that might be different and appropriate for uh, these sorts of projects. And the Treasury, I think, has done a lot of thinking on this, but we need to see that thinking now coming out uh, and backing this, pro this report, because it is that sort of thinking that will deliver this report for the British public. Thank you. Sarah. Thanks, Nick, and good morning, everyone. APM is the chartered body for the project profession, and we're really pleased to be supporting this event here this morning and this discussion. And we're also pleased with the hand we had in the report, which has been referred to already, about how to be an effective infrastructure minister. So the objective of creating a long-term pipeline of relevant infrastructure, and of course from our perspective, better and more effective project management at its heart, is an important one for the country in social and economic terms. And this assessment, well, the creation of the NIC first and foremost, to give uh, a more strategic and long-term approach to infrastructure investment, and now the launch of the assessment, is a big step in the right direction. And Sir John obviously has covered a lot of the, the, the headline content, and I don't want to duplicate that. But what I would like to do is raise just a few thoughts, uh, perhaps from some slightly different and still important angles. So for me, the key part of the report is the paragraph at the heart of the next steps section, where it says, infrastructure delivery depends on the availability of the right skills, the approach to construction and project <coughs> management, the depth of the supply base, and the capability of government and other infrastructure owners and operators to act as an intelligent client. These are the responsibility of the Infrastructure and Projects Authority, which advises on infrastructure delivery. The UK's exit from the EU will impact the UK's skills base and supply chain, and there should be a strategic approach to managing this. So firstly, what I draw from the whole document is an acknowledgement of the increasing interconnectivity of the various strands. A rail project, no longer just a rail project. We can't go on building houses in isolation. We have to be clear that integrated strategies are needed for transport, for employment, for housing, right from the very start. And the report recognises, as Stephen has said, the dangers around siloed decision-making, the challenges, complexity, dependency, volatility. And we need to see infrastructure developments in really new and imaginative ways. I welcome the importance that the NIA places on the impact on society and individuals. It's no longer just a spreadsheet concern. And I also welcome the fact that infrastructure is now seen in that much broader sense rather than just the physical. Second, creating the conditions for a national consensus on major projects and also major policy themes. It's a pretty challenging task. It's probably not healthy, and indeed it's probably not realistic to think that everything can be harmonious, delivered rationally. But I do think that the NIC can play a really important role in creating the conditions for a robust national debate to achieve long-term consensus where that's possible. 
third absolutely critical, long-term projects require long-term vision, lasting plans, stable funding. And collectively, we need, as you have said, Stephen, to move away from that short-term approach, that siloed decision-making, and the resulting private sector lack of confidence in investment. And these have been, for some time, one of the major frustrations of the delivery professions. So longer-term policy and decision-making, absolutely essential, and that will result in better project inception, which we all know from our research is one of the critical factors in the ultimate success of the projects. Fourth, and back to that paragraph which I quoted about the importance of creating better and more effective infrastructure capacity, we must continue the task which is <coughs> absolutely at the core of our profession at the moment, of improving the skills and the project leadership of all projects. And that will achieve better outcomes for society and for the economy, and not just on the old premise of delivering on time, on budget. I'm not saying that's not important, but it's no longer sufficient. And as I said last week in our initial response to the report... Uh, the report obviously signals a step change in how critical infrastructure could be delivered. It will bolster our profession's delivery capability. A robust and skilled UK project profession with increasing numbers of chartered project professionals will be pivotal to success in delivering the strategy. The assessment is rightly thinking long-term, but we must prime the pump line now, or prime the pipeline now, to build the skills, the capacity, the resilience to ensure successful delivery of the next generation of projects. And that's my advert for today, as you can imagine. But, <laughs> but seriously, government and all stakeholders involved in infrastructure need to ensure that we plan and we invest for the skills required. And John Manzoni, head of the civil service, said this only recently, in fact, in this very room at a previous event. He pointed out that the seeds of this professionalism are growing and they are being recognised within government itself. So that's welcome. We also recognise the need to build capability in procurement and delivery at a regional level before launching major programmes there. And that's something which I think has not been uh, really addressed in the past. I, I do believe we have a genuine opportunity here in the UK to become world leaders in this field. And finally, just a few words about partnership and collaboration. And again, I would echo that really important point that the Commission can't do this alone. Government, regulators, industry, citizens and others will all need to contribute to making this vision a reality. And that's whether it is the private sector innovating, whether it's the IPA offering an even stronger guiding hand from government, the metro mayors driving change at that regional level, professionals working across different sectors, learning and applying the lessons from the past. And yes, government should ensure publication of better data, more transparency on the costs and the benefits of major projects. Let's look at the success stories just as much as we look at the projects which go wrong. And in all this, effective partnership and collaboration is essential. And just finally, to congratulate Sir John on a really important 
report. Brilliant, thank you. I think one of the key themes that's come up there first from uh, John and Sarah is because the interconnectivity of these policies and that making the most of them will ensure that they're working together. Yet, as Stephen points out, their work in government is often siloed. So we calculate there are 26 ministers in eight different departments, all of whom have some sort of responsibility for infrastructure policy. So we absolutely agree that there is a role for a new uh, infrastructure minister in the Treasury. But short of that, I wonder what panellists think that the government can do, and particularly the Treasury can do when responding to the NIA, to ensure that it is taking account and drawing together the existing plans of different departments, and that those are integrated with the recommendations that have been made in the NIA. So perhaps to you first, Sir John. So easy first question. Well, I think this is not just about Treasury, of course. Uh, And as Stephen has said, this is an across-government challenge. Uh, It's a challenge for um, different government departments. I mean, and uh, in in Treasury sense, uh, I think the idea of an infrastructure... We've had one in the past. I mean, uh, Lord Dighton uh, held that that role... Uh, where you've got a minister in Treasury who has a specific responsibility to drive infrastructure. I think there's clearly a benefit to that. Having that person at the Cabinet table, of course, is what really counts um, if, the, if the individual is going to have any real, real clout. Um, <clears throat> the, I think the challenge for Treasury, as always, will be the, the financing of this. Um, the public sector directly finances road, rail, um, and flood, uh, flood control. The rest comes from the private sector, and so therefore that sets a whole series of much wider policy challenges for regulators and for government in determining how you, how you are able to encourage. Um, you know, last night I was at a discussion on regulation, and as the NIC we're going to be doing a piece of work on the effectiveness of regulation going forward. But that is going to be quite crucial in enabling the, the investment levels to uh, be developed where you've got a right balance between short-term price to the consumer and the long-term, the long-term consumer. What are the benefits to the long-term consumer and the investment that's needed to, uh, to meet the long-term uh, infrastructure requirements? I think the, um, if we can get more less siloed thinking across government, then that is clearly going to be uh, of benefit and is a crucial part of this. The consensus building is going to be extremely important. Uh, We um, intend to, essentially during the autumn, get ourselves out on a roadshow. But, I mean, the consensus building tends to, will need to be a lot longer than that. We did quite a lot of work with Ipsos Murray trying to get uh, the, the public engaged in these infrastructure issues because... You, know, you can't. Uh, you can't. As I've said in the past, you can't separate politics from infrastructure. And if the public are not supporting, or understanding the implications of um, different uh, approaches, then um, it's very difficult for ministers to actually get out and uh, and start demanding change if they can see that this is not going to be something which is acceptable to to voters. So, <coughs> opening up the public debate, I think, is as important in this as opening up uh, government. Um, finally, just in response to what Sarah was saying at the end there, there is a, a thousand miles to go by government in understanding the concept of collaboration. It does not. 
there is no, there is very little evidence, I would argue, um, that government in the procurement of projects really understands uh, what is required. Um, it's, uh, it is still far, far too rigid in its thinking um, and does not really understand the concept of, uh, of real collaboration which is necessary to, uh, to get the right balance of risk sharing. I made comments last week about the rail franchise system. At City and Guilds we are, we are seeking to bid for T-levels um, which will be the new technical levels at A-levels in schools. Uh, the attitude of government is very fundamentally, we're not interested in your opinions, it's take it or leave it, sit down, accept these regulations which we are going to put forward and the way this is going to be bid. And, and I've certainly you know, got to the point where you say, why are we bothering? This is just not worth our while. Uh, we will bother because we care about technical training. Uh, but the, the government's approach... It's up here, John Manzoni and senior people understand what we're talking about, as in any large organisation. Get that down into the middle layers, the tundra of the organisation where all new thinking is frozen, uh, then that is a massive management challenge and one which I think government has really got to get to grips with if it's going to change things. Well, I think John, so John's last point is, is true, and it's true of so many corporate and governmental structures. I mean, I do a lot of work, the other area I do a lot of work is in financial services. You know, the FCA gets it at the top level, but, you know, the next level down, it's frustrating British financial services, uh, and it, it seems to be designed to do that. Um, the organisation of which he was once chief executive is well known for its innovative thinking at the top <laughs> level. It's not entirely true either at the next level down or in the level after that. Um, but we'll come in. Oh, we'll sure come in. Well, the challenge back to government. So, I, I mean, I've said out, obviously, I think there should be an infrastructure minister. I did at one stage about f- uh, three or four years ago uh, write a paper with the ACA uh, on actually, actually having an infrastructure ministry. But I accept that's always not popular. But I wrote a report with um, the Housing and Infrastructure... Sorry, the Housing and Financing Institute last year about how do you get all the services in one place at one time. And actually, what that challenged was not only the, and I'll come back to the cross-government challenge, but the up-and-down challenge in terms of the levers of government, and John Stubbsy touched on this in his report in City Mayors. But how do you, get, how do you make sure that the decision-making for particular projects are taken at the right level and there is enough information and expertise at that right level and people understand what those projects were and what they drive? Um, about five years ago, the Department for Transport did a small road scheme which was designed, you could only bid for it if, if it was on safety or growth. Most of the schemes were growth, and they were only um, sort of, you could, there was 150 million in the pot, and I think the maximum you could bid for was 8 million. But what that unlocked around the country was incredibly successful. Uh, so I think the other thing that we need to think about quite carefully is making sure whether or not the decisions are being taken at the right level and whether we have the expertise to take them at the right level. Uh, and then going back to the cross-government thinking, I mean, I think the government will have to think very carefully about whether the way it's organised can work. Um, and I think it will also have to accept that it needs more experts in it. Sarah spoke a few minutes ago, um, as I have in my remark, about in- intelligent client. I think there's a widespread perception that the National Infrastructure Commission is working well and has worked well. 
Uh, again, across government, I'm not sure there's a widespread perception that the IPA is actually delivering on its objectives. And maybe the government needs to rethink whether or not that organisation needs some form of change to drive those projects forward. Um, Thank you. I mean, yes, I, I agree with much of what you said, but, but at the end of the day, what the Treasury needs is confidence in project outcomes. Um, and that's about confidence that benefits will be realised as much as investment will be managed appropriately. Uh, yes, it's important that we do much more to develop sponsorship capability, the intelligent client piece. Um, I think the IPA is doing a good job at the moment. I accept that its, it's uh, remit, in a sense, is perhaps narrower than one would like to see. But there's a huge amount of work going on in there in terms of upskilling in this area. It's interesting to see the, the real developments in terms of project management apprentices, for instance, which is completely bucking the trend on apprenticeships at the moment. And indeed, the demand for places on the civil service fast stream for project management. I mean, there is no doubt there is a real commitment and recognition around that. Um, I come back every time to the, the need for that longer-term decision-making, that real understanding that you can't do this on a short-term basis and have confidence, A, that you attract the private sector investment and B, that your project outcomes will be as you initially expect them to be. Thank you. I'm going to open it up to questions from the audience, and I'm going to take a couple of questions at a time. Can I please ask that they are indeed questions uh, and not statements? Uh, and can I please ask that you keep it relatively short so that as many people have an opportunity as possible? And I think there are a couple of people with microphones. Uh, so let's take the, the two down here at the front. Hi, um, Dan Slade from the Royal Town Planning Institute. Uh, so one of, the, I think, the concluding points in the IFG's recent um, report on this subject around ministers was about the levels of churn we experienced in infrastructure ministers. So in planning and housing, it's a serious problem, but also in transport and uh, more broadly as well. And I think a major reason for that churn is uh, the incentive structures around moving jobs, trying to get promoted faster into positions which are seen as being more influential and more powerful. So how do we fix them? within the system. Thank you. And uh, Peter Campbell from Westbourne Communications, probably more directed at Sir John, given um, the NIC and the National Infrastructure Assessment. But um, I'm just wondering, um, what regrets are there around the NIA? Is there anything in there, not in there that you wish was in there? Um, and likewise, I suppose, for the other two, with their other, are there things in the NIA, um, or there, are there not things in the NIA that you would like to have seen in there as well? Thank you. So that's a question from Dan about how do we reduce churn amongst minister and from Peter about regrets. I'm going to give John a little time to think about that question. So perhaps if I uh, come to Stephen first on how we reduce churn amongst ministers. It's been a nice morning. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, I think uh, it's a really good question because, as you know, we've just had the eighth housing minister in, I think, less than eight years. Um, I think there's an issue, obviously, where people are involved in politics uh, and MPs. Um, they recognise the, the chance of being in government gives you the chance to influence things, the chance to do things. But we have, the, we have a, a slightly perverse structure. There's very, very little stability. Uh, and I think it's, it's not an easy challenge to overcome um, because governments change, first of all, which is the first point. So even, 
even in most stable governments. And I have to confess that the Cameron government and the, the Cameron administration of the Conservative Party from 2006 through to about 2014 was a relatively stable administration. You know, people were... So I was shadow opposition transport, secretary, transport minister for, you know, four and a half years. Uh, and then went in as a transport minister thereafter. So David, I think, had tried to do that for a lot of people in opposition and then moved into government positions. It obviously changed slightly because of the coalition. Uh, but it's a formidable challenge. Um, there's, there was absolutely no need, for instance, to move the recent housing minister. He could have stayed there for a longer time, in my opinion. Uh, and I, I think that it's something that, you know, it's probably the point I should have made, which is that government, I think, needs to challenge itself about whether it needs so many movements. But then you have ambitious people in who want to be government ministers so they can do that. It's a very, it's a, it's a, it's easier in a corporate structure to actually overcome, I mean, I've worked in many corporate structures, it's probably easier to overcome and move people's ambitions around than it is in, in government. But it, it you know, playing to what Sarah's need about not only the need for long-term planning, the long-term stability at the head of who's, who's sponsoring those projects is true, but I, I'm not sure there's any easy solution to that question, I'm afraid. Thank you. John? Yeah, on that question, I think, uh, I think one of the differences in corporate world is that there is possibly a greater consensus around uh, policy and strategy. Uh, which you're able to keep going. And that, yes, there are movements below that, and so you might change executive directors in an organisation, um, but in fact the, the underlying, and it's more then about delivery. And I think the big problem for government is that, you know, the juiciest jobs in the civil service, and why are you a minister in the first place, largely not about delivery, more about policy. And that's the dilemma, I think, that there is what you get with change of minister. Um, and if you're working closely with government, you know, the first question you ask yourself is, well, what's this going to mean for the policy? Is the new minister in the same government, let alone in a different policy, in a different party, but is that new minister actually going to have the same views on policy? And that's what creates the uncertainty, is this constant shift of, of policy. And a complete, you know, not complete, but I... Deliveries, the, the, the deliverers are the second-class citizens in government, uh, and that I think is a fundamental weakness of um, the, the, you know, actually taking forward um, policy. Um, so uh, there just isn't the focus on the uh, detail in policy, and then that all gets shaken out, and then it actually undermines the policy. Of course, when people actually realise the complexity of the of the uh, of, of the detail. Um, regrets about um, what we've done? Um, yeah, at the moment, not too many. Uh, um, it's, uh, I think the, re the regret will be if, in fact, we're unable in the longer term to actually see these policies being delivered. Um, and that's what we've got to clearly all work on, is to make sure that the pressure is maintained and uh, the arguments are maintained to, to ensure it. There are some interesting things which are, in, in a sense, in the document which don't get headlines particularly, but which are very important for the future. We didn't go overly strongly on the whole issue of how do we pay for our motoring in the future. Uh, it's there in the report. It's one of the most important things. We chose not to make it a headline because we saw no benefit in doing that at this stage, but it's one of the things which has got to be picked up. Um, the electrification of cars means the loss of £30 billion worth a year of revenue to the Treasury. Where's that going to come from? And how do we, in the future, 
um, pay for our motoring because we can't just have it 30 billion cheaper. Uh, and, and so we've got that, that, I think, is a fundamental question for, for the future. And I, don't re I don't regret the decision we made, but I think it's one of those things which is in there but which will require a lot more debate. So, I don't think I've got... No. Uh, <laughs> OK, we'll take a, a couple more questions. Uh, I think, firstly, this gentleman here and then this gentleman over here. Uh, the, the uh, John Burt, House of Lords. I worked at number 10 between 2000 and 2005. I led a, um, a, a large team of DFT, Cabinet Office, Treasury officials looking at our national transport infrastructure. Identified a 50-year problem. Um, identified clearly we had the worst transport infrastructure by far of any leading country. Looked at root causes. Um, over 50 years, a far smaller proportion of GDP invested in infrastructure than any other country. A constant picture under all government of stop-start. The second, there was the financial crisis immediately cutting back on uh, capital uh, spending. Um, I strongly support the drive of what Stephen Hammond um, uh, was saying, but would like to press him a little further um, we concluded that the root cause problem was the, tre the culture of the Treasury. It wasn't about individual governments, it wasn't about individual ministers, it was the attitude of mind. The Treasury is like a badly run small business, focuses on short term uh, results, does not invest in long term uh, gain. So yes, possibly an infrastructure minister in the Treasury would, would change the psychology, but is that enough? And well, Nick, thank you very much. Uh, I think having traveled farthest to this event and adjusted my program to be here, you probably indulge me to speak a bit longer. Uh, my name is Chidi Izuwa, and I'm from the Infrastructure Regulatory Commission from Nigeria. I would just like to commend uh, you know, uh, Sir John for the wonderful work his commission has done. And uh, if you don't mind, we look forward to copying shamelessly from you, you know, to improve Nigeria. My, my question is really about the infrastructure minister stuff. Is it going to work? Infrastructure is multidisciplinary. I mean, we elect prime ministers and presidents for a purpose. You know, shouldn't the infrastructure minister in a government be the prime minister or the president? You know, who has the power of coordination? Because if you put somebody at a lateral level with other ministers with no political authority, you know, to get compliance, you know, it's just going to be another, you know, sense of tension, you know, that just creates, you know, silos and, you know, a cycle of work. Now, if that fails, maybe what we need is some infrastructure whip in government, you know, who goes around whipping people just to make them, you know, put them into shape. Thank you. I'm going to ask Stephen Hodge quickly because I know he has to run. Well, uh, respect to, uh, responding directly to John Burt's question, I, mean, I think clearly an infrastructure minister is not enough. And he is right, changing the mentality of the Treasury. I remember um, one of the great battles which we actually in the end managed to win was the getting a four-year funding cycle for the Highways Agency back in 2013. Prior to that, Road spending in this country had been done on an annual basis and annual basis only. Uh, <clears throat> so the long-term commitment, so they couldn't change, because the Treasury likes to control the purse strings year by year, getting them to commit to long-term projects and therefore long-term funding streams is very difficult, and changing that mentality. And that's why I think it is important to have the Minister inside the Treasury, because it can 
batter against that. So that's one of the reasons why I make the point I think it needs to be inside the Treasury. And you are absolutely right, the mentality of the Treasury. So, I mean, I go back to my point I made in my early remarks. But, you know, you wouldn't know, you, you shouldn't be trying to fund projects over a five-year lifestyle when they have a you know, 100 years of worth. I mean, it's, it's just, I mean, just the government needs to change in the Treasury. And so uh, I will go back and reread your stuff from that period because I think it's, 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 it is instructive and probably... Pardon? It's Ah, oh, well, then you can... Like all good politicians, you can leak it to the appropriate yeah. source. <laughs> uh, and I think, uh, to the gentleman over here, um, I think you need... I, I disagree. I don't think the president... Whilst the president of the country or the prime minister of the country is the chief executive of the country, to use the analogy, uh, and it may well be that they're committed to certain projects and see those as want to put press their imprimatur on them, the execution for the policy and also for driving the execution has to be someone underneath that. Um, having a prime minister or a president that's committed to that is key, I think, and giving the power to someone. I absolutely agree, but it sh I don't think they should be the person doing it. I think they should be the, the support, the mentor, the drive. Great. And I apologise. I have to head off. Stephen. Oh, sorry. Um, I don't disagree with um, what Stephen has uh, just said. Um, I mean, I've always said that on very large projects, uh, they will never happen until you've got the Prime Minister and the Chancellor in support. Um, in High Speed 1, Channel Tunnel Rolling was a classic example of that. Um, the, the, some people may remember the sort of, I don't think it was apocryphal really, but uh, Mitterrand came over uh, and said that he had sped across the plains of France and ambled through the orchards of Kent. Uh, <laughs> Ma Margaret Thatcher almost the following day, uh, having been clearly stung by this, announced that she was now going to support uh, <laughs> the Channel Tunnel Rail Link, and, uh, and it moved, and it, everything happened from, from there on. Uh, and you can see, uh, in a sense, with High Speed 2, Andrew Adonis was able to garner the support of David Cameron and George Osborne and that um, in essentially got that project moving in the way that it did, move far more rapidly um, than others have. <clears throat> so thoughts on the, the culture of the Treasury or the role of the Prime Minister? Well, as far as the Treasury is concerned, it would just be so much easier, wouldn't it, if the Treasury understood the implications of those short-term decisions, the changes of policy and felt more accountable for project outcomes because there is no, you know, there is no doubting the linkage between failing projects and, uh, and the difficulties of, of, of getting good project inception as a result of long-term policy and decision-making. And I think a better understanding that this is not just about finance, this is about an understanding of the wider economic and social benefits and what we're trying to deliver here. Um, in terms of infrastructure, Minister, well, I would say I would agree, but we have to start somewhere, and I think this is a good place. What we really want is that much wider debate with all those who are key stakeholders in the development and delivery of infrastructure to be engaged in that debate, for those policy discussions to happen much more widely. And if an infrastructure minister can help facilitate that, then worth doing. I'm going to take two more quick questions. So there's a gentleman in the pink shirt there. Hi, uh, Martin Hurst, um, UCL. Um, in 20 years as a senior civil servant on infrastructure, the only thing I found harder than getting long-term decisions on infrastructure was getting decisions on road pricing, accepting that water bills are too low fundamentally, 
and that on floods we need to move, help some communities move rather than protect them. How do we build a long-term plan for infrastructure and demand for infrastructure? Uh, and uh, one more here just at the front in the blue shirt. Thank you. Uh, Peter Amman from the Whitehall and Industry Group and uh, previously Director General at uh, DEFRA. Um, just a, a quick question on your views on how government prioritises financially between projects uh, in terms of cost-benefit analysis and, and other models. And if you look, Stephen's left, but if you look, look just at transport, we have a system where there are some very bizarre incentives about how people travel from A to B via road, rail or air. And therefore, have we got the pricing decisions on infrastructure right to give people at the right incentives for how they live and work. Okay, so there's a question on demand and prioritisation between projects. And if I could ask the panellists to also use this opportunity for any final comments that they'd like to make to wrap up. Over to you. I'm sorry, I didn't quite understand the, your final point. Well, the question up there is how do you build a long-term plan for infrastructure? Yeah. Because the question is what's the role of demand management plan? Well, I think... The challenge, of de the challenge for demand management um, flows through a whole series of different... Um, and you can, you can financially incentivise people, can't you? Um, and you can, as we've seen with congestion charging, um, uh, you can... We've seen the success of water metering, um, which is not compulsory. Um, but is encouraged. Um, the water companies estimate the 17% reduction um, in demand as a consequence of uh, water metering. I mean, I strongly believe that, um, you know, that, that in fact the more you can encourage people to understand what their, their use of something is costing them, then uh, the more they're likely to regulate that, uh, that behaviour. Um, the uh, I mean, we've, we've met, I didn't reference it earlier on. I mean, we've suggested a £3.8 billion um, support for um, a programme of insulation and further um, reduction or improvement in the efficiency of homes. I mean, that has proved to be one of the most difficult challenges of all that we've faced in recent years in this country. The Green Deal didn't work. Didn't work because the government wanted, Treasury wanted to charge commercial rates of interest for people to borrow money uh, to invest in their in their homes, which they're not going to uh, do quite clearly, particularly um, with a long payback and an average period of dwelling in a dwelling of seven years. Um, so uh, we've suggested that in the first place we have to start on social housing um, and um, and get that fixed before you move and try and solve the problem of in private uh, housing. Um, but I think you know financial incentives are more likely to influence demand than anything else. And that's the, potentially the challenge of road pricing, which, as you say, has been all, not around for a long time. The great thing about modern technology is that we could literally be paying by the, by the minute by the type of road that we are travelling on. Uh, and, you could, um, and you could influence people's time of day when they choose to, to drive. If that, were, if that were the case, I think you could have a very significant influence uh, through uh, de uh, demand management in, in that way. Um, sorry, Peter. The prioritisation. How do you prioritise between projects? Ah. How do you, you finance in a way that gives the right incentives for people to use the infrastructure? I mean, arguably, I think the you know, one of the ways to prioritise between projects is to focus on the ones you can deliver. 
uh, and not waste a lot of time on trying to deliver things which are actually going to be almost undeliverable uh, and put all your energy into that when there are other things which can, uh, are more likely to uh, obtain public support and therefore are more likely to uh, be delivered. But, I mean, fundamentally, the other challenge we face in this country, and it's a tricky one, is, um, is balancing the economy and this constant challenge of the expenditure in the South and expenditure elsewhere in the country and what prioritisation do you give to that? Now, people may well accuse us, I suspect, of having ducked that in this report in that we've tried to please everybody. Um, so we've said, yes, we must continue with Crossrail 2 because of the massive um, benefits that can flow from that in continuing to ensure that London remains a driving force in the economy. But equally, we have said that that should... That sh I mean, uh, interesting, Chris Grayling said that he thought the Crossrail 2 and, trans and uh, um, the uh, rail, rail improvements in the north should go forward um, in lockstep. Um, our interpretation of that is a more financial one, is that, that we should, out and we've said, allocate £24 billion of funds to that transport improvement in the north. So let's see similar levels of funding which we allocate to Crossrail to be allocated to, to the north. The challenge of that is, in fact, that if you look, and this is a reality which I think we have to face up to in this, if you look at the next five or six years, there isn't any spare money. The RIS 2 for highways, network rails, CP6, those monies are essentially spent, allocated. Um, they take up a very large proportion of um, government funds which are available for infrastructure. Therefore, you can, you can play around at the edges, but the real impact of our report is post-2025. That's where we're saying that there needs to be a greater redistribution of, um, of funding across the country. With, uh, and we've actually taken money away, which has caused some debate, um, from Highways England and from uh, Network Rail, particularly post-2030, in order to create uh, funding for, uh, for example, for maintenance of highways, which we see as being a, a priority. Um, and we've, we've said 500 million a year needs to go from that. The only place we can find that 500 million is by reducing the budgets available to the uh, strategic road network. These are sort of choices which I think have to be, have to be made and faced up to. Um, there is a limited pot. It's why we can't walk away um, from private finance. <clears throat> Government cannot afford to do everything. And therefore, we've got to continue to find, <clears throat> to find the right incentives and the right arrangements to ensure that private finance flows uh, into all the other types of uh, infrastructure in, in the right way. And as I agree totally with Stephen, you know, we shouldn't throw the baby out with uh, PFI and other types of uh, financial initiative. We should learn from the mistakes that we've made in previous contracts and previous arrangements and improve on it and get a better one next time. And then a better one after that. You just don't give up on something which is so fundamental to the delivery of infrastructure as private, uh, um, private finance. You just have to find the, the best ways in which you can bring it into the system. Thank you. Um, just very quickly, in terms of prioritising, I think it's about understanding the full benefits you're trying to achieve, not just taking that narrow approach to these, having more confidence in the funding models. Um, in terms of final comments, I hope very much that this report gets the widest possible debate, I mean, as, as far and wide as it can go, because I think there's a real opportunity here to open up a better understanding of this and the need for that longer-term approach. 
Brilliant, thank you. Well, I'll finish it there, and I'm sorry for all those who didn't get a chance to ask a question. Thank you very much for coming today. Thank you in particular to our panellists, Sir John Armit, uh, Sarah Drake, uh, and Stephen Hammond, and a particular thanks to uh, the Association for Project Management for sponsoring today's event. And for those who haven't had a chance to read the other big report that has been released recently, uh, can I please recommend that you do so? It's available on all good websites. Uh, thank you. Um, goodbye.